Hello and welcome to. Hello and welcome to. Voyage to First Vintage. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we are your hosts. That's James Frost. And that's Daniel Frost. This week, we've got a wonderful interview for you guys. Uh, we talked to Elliot Graham of Busby Sellers. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time chatting with him. Yeah. Picking I... his brain, having him kind of pepper us with some questions which made us think about some things we might not have thought of before yeah and i said this a couple times during the podcast but busby sellers started out with you know absolutely no property no vineyard nothing and they built everything from the ground up so that's why i was super excited to talk to them because that's where we are we have they've been through it yeah, that's right. I've been through the whole kit and caboodle. That's right. And Elliot did an awesome job of explaining terms that people who aren't in the wine industry um, might not know. Mm-hmm. And he may have helped us debut a new section, so keep your ears peeled for that <laughs> in this episode and future episodes. Don't tell him what it is. Don't oh, spoil it. Oh, I was going to spoil it. All gotta, right. Got to hook them. Got to keep them around. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, we'll roll into our interview. And we'll catch you guys on the other side. Enjoy. We have on the line Elliot from Busby Sellers. And go ahead, James. Oh, I was going to say, Elliot, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about um, your winery and vineyard, and then we can get into some. some... Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, my name is Elliot Graham. I um own and founded Busby Cellars, which is in Fairplay in the Sierra Foothills of California. Um, we've been here a little over 20 years now, my wife, Sherry, and I, and um, it's a real, a real labor of love. Um, and if you guys are um, going down the same path that we are, that you'll, you'll learn that um, you're, uh, you're in it. Um, and once you're in it, it's, it's hard to um, escape the hard work that you, that you've laid out for yourself. Um, on another note, I just wanted to say how excited I am that you guys are, are doing this podcast. I was a nice. kind of an earlier adopter of podcasts. Some people didn't even know what they were. Um, and part of this business is when you're starting a small winery is you're a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I'm fine with kind of a solitary thing, but I like listening to content. And um, I, I think it's so great that you're doing doing this, especially with this, yeah. this niche um, topic. Um but on the negative side for you, you guys are on the record now. You're held accountable to yeah. uh, to your voyage to first vintage. Right. I think that for us was a big driver. Is we felt if it was just an idea, we didn't have something to kind of keep us honest and keep us moving forward. Yeah, it would take us a lot, a lot longer and fall by the wayside a bit more. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's so great. I think that's so great. You guys are on the right path. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely been a motivator for sure because you know we have to come up with content every week, and so keeping on track with that um, really helps us drive our, our way towards being exactly where you guys are now. So yeah. I'm really excited. <laughs> we were just talking uh, to Elliot earlier about how you know we are where he was <laughs> in. Wow. 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, about 20 years or ago. Maybe right. more than 20. Yeah. yeah. And so... Yeah, and, and we got really lucky um, it, with our timing. Um, 
when we bought our property in 1999, um, we had been looking for quite a few years for property. We looked in El Dorado, Amador, mostly because we're, those were the places back then that were affordable. But um, honestly, if we were looking for property again right now, we couldn't have afforded to buy what we bought. Um, so we got really lucky timing-wise on that. Um, over the years, I you know I haven't actively been involved in looking at, at um, agricultural real estate, but over the years, I have seen um, little things pop up that um, might be might be right down your your alley. And I know I can tell you guys have an interest in the Sierra foothills and, and yeah. Fair Play uh, specifically. So um, you know you you might just find that thing. Yeah, That's what we're hoping and for. James, I swear, has been on uh, property sites in particular for at least two years, just yeah. looking for fun, if not anything, seeing yeah, what's out for there fun until we got a little more serious and now, yeah <laughs> i mean we're probably yeah we sorry go ahead yeah we did that in the days of uh you know pre-internet in the days of fax machines and we would have real estate agents faxing us um property information and we'd go check them out on the weekends and uh you know something finally fell into our lap that's really cool that's how you found the property was through um something that was faxed to you y- yes so we owning a winery when you're a kid, which we were when we started, seemed like such a, a pipe dream. Um, yeah. And I think it was 1996, we stumbled onto a parcel in Amador County. And believe it or not, this was a, uh, a nearly defunct winery. Um, I can't remember how many acres the parcel itself was, but um, it had a house, it had a small winery, and it had maybe five or six acres of vineyard. Mm-hmm. And the real estate market in 1996 was not great. Um, and we were living in a subdivision of Sacramento and we were always kind of attracted to this lifestyle, more this rural lifestyle. And we thought, oh my goodness, we could sell our house in this subdivision and and attract home and relocate to this beautiful place. And so it was kind of born out of that. Um, I think that property was an escrow at the point that we found it, but that's what started the search. So ideally we were looking for a, parcel that encompassed it all, a, a house, a, a vineyard, uh, a winery, and where it would be a little bit more turnkey. Yeah. And what did we wind up with? Um, 34 acres of dirt. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's a good starting but, but point. Was it, was it good dirt? That's the important yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That part was great. And we loved, and we loved the site, and we could, we could envision everything and you know we looked at, at many parcels but we're we're really happy with the with the parcel we wound up with for your listeners who aren't familiar with the um with the sierra foothills and fair play in particular um fair play is the southernmost um portion of el dorado county it's tentatively the line between the middle fork and the south fork of the Casumnes river it borders amador county um so the soils here are a little bit more you get some decomposed granite you get some sandy loam um, not the most fertile soils, but um, if you're careful with your farming, you'll be really happy with the results. Awesome. That's so good. So that actually leads into a question Danielle was thinking about earlier. Um, with your soil types, how did that affect um, your varietal selection for your vineyards and um, rootstock selection and all those variables? Yeah, it fit in really well for us. Um, we were always looking for for kind of a low yield um, operation, mm-hmm. which, from a commercial standpoint, is probably not the most 
viable choice, but we, we were kind of attracted to that. We liked mm-hmm. um, we liked head trained vines, which I know from listening to your previous episodes that, that I can tell you have a bent toward that as well. Oh, yes. um, so about half of our our vineyard is head trained, nice. and we knew from the beginning that we wanted to dry farm as much as possible, mm-hmm. and if not dry farm, employ some deficit um, irrigation management tactics. Okay. And we've done that, but we're we're very low yield. If we mm-hmm. if we have two and a half tons to the acre that's a big a big year for us so um that affected our our varietal selection by definitely picking the hardier varieties more thick skin varieties um so we planted um to zinfandel petite syrah we branched out a little bit with things like tempranillo um, malbec um petite verdot our most daring for our climate we we have some um morvedra which is challenging Um, and Grenache. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of our plan from, from the beginning low yield, um, high quality. Awesome. And, uh, dry farming, that just means that you guys didn't put in any irrigation for the, for the vines, right? So you, you have to install irrigation. Okay. Um, the first few years of a vine's life, they can't get enough water. I mean, the rootstock or the roots just are not established yet. So okay. you do go through the effort of installing a, a, perfectly functional irrigation system and then after a few years you just stop using it so we planted our the portion of our vineyard that's dry farmed we planted in 2001 it's all zinfandel and we stopped watering i believe in 2005 it might be 2006 so you're establishing a root stock but you're doing the root growth but you're doing it strategically like you're giving it after the first couple of years, you're giving it just the amount of water that it needs to survive. And then after that, it, it thrives. Awesome. And so you guys bought the land in 1999, and then you guys were up and running as a winery in 2004. How, how, is that right? Did I get that right? Yes. How was yes. that? Like, that is an insane turnaround time. Yeah, that is very quick. Like, from having yeah. this, like, bare lands to, you know, a producing winery. Like, how was that process for you? Yeah, there were a lot of um, happy circumstances leading up to that. Um, but we're also, you know, you guys, you guys have been to our, our property, our vineyard and winery before. We're also very modest. You know, we're not a um, ostentatious place for sure. We're very production oriented and we have a small tasting room. So, um, you know, it's not like we built the Taj Mahal. But <laughs> we... We started and, and learned pretty early on that this wasn't going to work unless we were involved in every aspect of it. I'll, I'll tell you from the beginning, we bought the property in 1999. In 2000, we were preparing to plant for 2001. Um, mm-hmm. So again, when we bought the property, there wasn't electricity here. There wasn't a house. There wasn't a well. There wasn't a road. Um, so we were doing all of that sort of at the same time. Wow. Um, so when we were um, establishing the vineyard, we had just started living on the parcel. And the first thing, kind of the big wake-up call, was uh, we live in an area where there are deer. And I don't know why. That just didn't occur to me. So it's, <laughs> I, I was reading and talking to people, and the first thing I heard was, well, step number one, install deer fence. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, what, what is that? Um, I quickly learned that it's a fence eight feet high all around the perimeter of your vineyard. And I didn't um, really worry too much until I started calling some fencing contractors. 
and learned at that time, you know, 20 years ago, I think they were charging $15 a foot. Oh and I'm starting to, do, starting to do the math, and we had about a mile of fencing that we needed to install, and I thought, ooh, I better learn how to install fencing. <laughs> and it all sort of snowballed out of that. Like, when we bought the property, I had literally never glued two pieces of PVC together, yeah. and pretty soon you're doing that, like if you do it in your sleep. Yeah. So we did it where it almost just became rote. It's you, you um, get up, do your work, you're tired at the end of the day, and before you know it, it's your, your, uh, you have an open business. Yeah. That's incredible. And how many hours a day would you say you spent? <laughs> James and I were fighting over, well, not fighting. We were having a discussion about. A like, disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> about how many hours a day um, we would need to spend when we we're, you know, trying to get our winery up and going. So There's, was it like a 12-hour day for you? Was it like, you know, the crack of dawn to dusk that you guys were working out there? It's it's hard working, guys. It's a, it's I don't know. I I can't tell you exactly how many, but yeah, some somewhere in that range. Sometimes sometimes more. Um, but it gets it gets better. It's once you once you get into kind of a cycle, it gets better. There there have been times where it was really difficult. We we kind of compounded everything um, by you know we were we were trying to put in the vineyard and then we wanted to establish our label. Um, so we did our first two vintages were done as a custom crush. So I was trying to be as involved in that as possible as well. So our first vintage was actually 2001. Um, the first wines we made here at, uh, Busby Cellars was 2003. Um, so we, we built, we, I literally built our winery myself. And when I say that, I mean, you know, I'm wearing nail bags and using nail guns and hammers and that kind of thing. Um, so we, I remember this, we um, got our bond, our, uh, our winery bond on September 5th, 2003, and we did our first crush on September 6th, 2003. Oh um, I'm not saying we wouldn't have done the crush if we hadn't had the bond. It just happened to work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a very JIT um, system for us. Very cool. So does that mean, so you guys planted your vines in 2001, is that right? Yes. And then your uh, first vintage was in 2003? Was that with... Yes. Was I, that with... Yes. I think we did... So that would be the third leaf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got a little bit... We got a little bit of estate fruit in 2003 That's from our vineyard. Not much. And then we were contracting for the rest. Awesome. We're almost... We're probably... At this point, we're probably 80% estate. Oh, okay. That's awesome. And uh, one question that James had earlier was, um, what... Like, how did you guys come up with, with the name Busby Sellers? Oh, Busby is my wife's maiden name. Um, our last name is Graham. Mm-hmm. And as you may or may not know, there's a, a really uh, well-known port manufacturer named Graham. Um, so we knew we couldn't use that. And we frankly lacked the um, the creativity to come up with a, a fancy name. So um, <laughs> her last name is Busby. It's um, early in the alphabet, and it works for uh, a lot of listings, brochures, websites. I love it. I love that name. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very cool. Tell us about how you guys market. Um, that's something that James and I struggle with. I know that you you and Sherry both have a background in, in sales, and that's like our weakest spot, I think. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys market? Like, how did you guys get your name out there? It is tough at the beginning. Um, 
you can't it, it seems to me like your your goal is similar to what ours was to have a, a vineyard and winery and tasting mm-hmm. room correct mm-hmm. yeah yep. yeah um it's um probably not realistic to just open up your tasting room and say hey we're here come visit us Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do a little bit more than that. We didn't do much more than that, um, but we had the advantage of being one of the earlier wineries in, in Fair Play. Okay. Um, we, I think we were the ninth or tenth winery uh, tasting room open in Fair Play. Wow. So um, to give a little history, the first winery was established in this area in 1980. And uh, that was Fitzpatrick Winery. Mm-hmm. And we started in 1999, so about 20 years later. And, and, and it's just amazing to me that another 20 years after that, we're, we are where we are now. So it's, it's mm-hmm. crazy that we've been part of the Fair Play Appalachian for half of its existence. So we did benefit a little bit more from that kind of homespun mentality, which is what Fair Play was um, mm-hmm. in its early beginning so yeah. we we did get a little bit more of that foot traffic just by being hey there's some new kids on the block That's and awesome. strangely and you'll find this too we had youth on our side um we found that a lot of customers almost treated it like a novelty like here are these young kids starting this um enterprise and we <laughs> want to support them so Aww. we did have that but we did have to supplement with some outside sales mm-hmm. and that is my weakest part to. Um, we tried to stay out of stores as much as possible, but we did do restaurants. Yeah. And, you know, you get that dreaded E-word exposure, you have to do it. And those um, okay. those tastings with restaurant staff is awkward. Um, <laughs> but it's but it's a necessary part of it. Right. I was just talking to my dad about that and how, um, you know, it'd be beneficial to us to have somebody go around and just bring people a bottle of wine and say, hey, do you want to you want to sell this in your restaurant? Yeah. Is that basically what you guys did? Yes, um, I didn't. I didn't really do a lot of cold calling. Okay. It was mostly. Um, it, it was mostly we would have people that were patrons of a specific restaurant, uh-huh. and they liked our wines, and they would the the patron would like our wines and mention mm-hmm. to a restaurant owner or staff, "Hey, why don't you carry this wine?" Okay. And then I would do a tasting as a result of that. I don't think I did many um, cold call. Um, uh, restaurant tastings, and quite frankly, I—that's just not my, not in my makeup either. I, I don't like that. Um, yeah. But uh, you may have to suck it up a little bit and do that. Right. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. If you are hearing background noise, it's our cat that's She's running behind the microphone and behind the curtains. She doesn't She's know we're we're being professional. <laughs> yeah. but, hey, the winery cat's going to pay dividends in the future. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully, you got to yeah. pay for your keep, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, I, get out of here. I do think uh, to go back to our previous conversation uh, that us getting out of our comfort zone is definitely going to be something we need to do quite a bit to make this make this work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's tough too for me. Um, what I didn't expect, and I don't know exactly what your personalities are, but I didn't realize how taxing the tasting room would be on me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm very much an introvert, um, 
And a lot of people think that an introvert means you're shy and an extrovert means you're outgoing. It's, it's not that at all. I'm, I'm not shy at all, but an introvert needs alone time to right. um, kind of recharge their batteries and an extrovert needs to be around people. Mm-hmm. I am very much an introvert. And for me, the, the combination works really well where I can be by myself in the vineyard or working in the winery. And then the tasting room, we're, we're open Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. The tasting room just zaps me. I'm, I'm on the, at the end of the day on Sunday, I'm, I'm, defeated. Um, So I don't know if you guys are facing those same things. That was the, that was the one thing that I did not expect Mm -hmm. in doing this. So um, consider that I would suggest um, if you haven't volunteer in a tasting room, um, you'll, you'll find out um, what it's like. Yeah. You meet so many different personality types and you have to manage so many different um, types of taster. You know, some people are there just for the party. Some people are there with a notebook um, wanting to learn about the wines. Um, and, and you have to do all of that and be good at it while, while pouring wine and having three different conversations. Right. Yeah, that's I think Danielle's well-suited for that. I don't She's know. definitely an extrovert. But, I, I mean, I'm an extrovert, but also being social for a very long amount of time is just taxing. It's, mm-hmm. It is extremely draining to you know try to keep up conversation and and like be you know on cloud nine like having a good time for hours straight you know and and having that smile to go along with it to keep people around and and buying your product so i can see how that can be definitely draining (laughs) i think james is more of an introvert he likes his alone time (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah but you know, like yeah, it's all about it's all about finding um, whatever formula works for you, um, and it 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 does work for me. I I would not um, I couldn't work in a tasting room five days a week, um, but I can do it because I have you know one thing you'll learn too about um, owning a small winery and vineyard. You have an amazing amount of jobs. It's you, you have so many jobs. Um, they're not glamorous. It's probably ninety percent of this work is janitorial. Um, you're dirty most of the time. Um, in the winery, especially at Crush, you're wet and sticky and cold. And mm-hmm. in the vineyard, you're hot and dusty and dirty. And um, there's this whole romantic notion associated with with vineyards. And you know, James, it's it's farming. It's yeah. it's farming just like you're farming peaches or tomatoes or corn. Um, but people have, I think, because the vineyard is lined up in these little fancy rows and they're mm-hmm. drinking glass of wine while they're admiring the vineyard, um, that they have this whole romantic notion about it. But it's it's work. Yeah, yeah. it definitely is a lot of work. Um, and I think it's exactly like you said, when they come to visit a tasting room or drive by a vineyard, it looks so nice and pretty and relaxing. And they just don't see, it's like um, a duck on a pond. They don't see the feet going 100 miles an hour under the water. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. I've had so many guests in the tasting room ask me, it, well, it happened a lot more when I was younger, um, but uh, they'd say to my face, are you independently wealthy? Oh, and nice. that that one drives me crazy because they look out and see what they want to see. And yeah. I look out and see 12,000 vines that I put in. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so... Put your blood, sweat, and tears into that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Sinking money in. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's also kind of a rude thing to ask. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, de- that definitely discounts the work and the yeah. effort quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I was talking about fair play earlier and, um, 
and probably El Dorado County in, in general, and probably every wine region. Um, mm-hmm. This started out, and and we were fortunate enough to know um, many of the pioneers that that began this wine region. If um, some of your listeners aren't aware, I mentioned Fitzpatrick Winery earlier, but there are others like um, Granite Springs Winery, Latcham Winery, um, were some of the earlier ones that sort of established this area. And all of those, while while they're still here, they've all changed hands once or twice. So um, I think I think we are now. My wife Sherry and I, I think we're the longest um, consecutively running tasting room in Fair Play. And what's strange about that for me is um, I lo- I have more of that kind of pioneering, get your hands dirty spirit, like um, some of the the original Fair Play winery owners had. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing a shift now, which is not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of the newer winery owners um, have either purchased these wineries from the original owners or are starting their own. And most have made, um, I think, some substantial money in a different field before coming into this. And I don't want to say this is a vanity project for them. Um, It might be, it might not be. But what's good about that is it's pumping new life into this region. It used to be like pulling teeth to get um, anyone to write a check, any of the winery owners to write a check for marketing um, or anything like that, because all, all proceeds went back into the land because you had Mm -hmm. to do it that way. So on the negative side, we're, we're seeing a little bit less of that, um, that get up and do it yourself, but Mm -hmm. a lot more willingness to, Hey, let's promote the area and and, um, market a a region instead of a brand. That's awesome. Yeah. And is there any anything else any in any other area where you're seeing kind of a shift like in um maybe like what consumers are looking for? I know that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast about how like a lot of people are now looking for an experience to go along with their wine tasting instead of just coming, you know, just to taste some wine. And have you seen that shift also? Definitely more of an experience, um, especially with younger people. Mm-hmm. And it is a little bit concerning because we we actually don't see a lot of millennials. Um, I don't know if if um, the popularity of craft beer has um, <laughs> yeah. done a shift from that, but we do not see a lot of millennials. And that is one of my concerns um, about some of our customers aging out because we are we are seeing that now. Yeah. So we need we need a little bit of a shift. Um, historically, the wine industry as a whole is really bad about um, keeping up on um, marketing to younger people and mm-hmm. social media. And although it's getting better, they're traditionally bad. So if if younger wine buyers don't have as much money to spend, you have to give them an experience. Yeah. And oftentimes we forget what our, our biggest assets are. I mean, for us as a winemaker, um, barrel tasting is, is ho-hum. That's boring. But that's an experience to someone who hasn't done that oh, before. Yeah. I would love to uh, drinking wine. Yep. Yeah, drinking <laughs> wine out of a press is an experience that someone hasn't done before. We did one of our most popular events last year where we tasted – a wine, a bottled wine, um, and then a barrel sample of that same wine from the next vintage, mm-hmm. and then a wine right out of the press that happened to be ready to press. And 
it was you would have thought it was just a great a great event for people when that's so um mundane for me but you can't you can't ignore your greatest assets yeah that's right i'm just thinking like oh my gosh i would love to do that <laughs> like, yeah. that sounds amazing so next time you guys have that event be sure to invite yeah us. yeah <laughs> that's awesome and then what are your thoughts on canned wine <laughs> danielle's um <laughs> yeah, you know, I I have no problem with it. It's the, I've been saying for years that things like that are are fine. It's I've been a proponent of um, screw top wines. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be um, gaining much traction in the quote unquote fine wine market. I think um, wine is is such a traditional hobby that if you don't pull that little cork out in here. It's yeah. it, it's somehow substandard, yeah. but um, yeah, I think it's great. And didn't James? Didn't you say that you know mm. when you read something somewhere oh. that yeah. the bigger pop that you give when you're a you know waiter? Like a, yeah, waiter, a sommelier. Supposedly, the bigger the pop, the bigger the tip. <laughs> yes. Have you seen a, a waiter open a bottle of screw cap wine at a restaurant? No. They literally they literally turn away from you. Um, surreptitiously unscrew the cap and drop it in the pocket of their apron and uh-huh. you never see the cap again where the cork gets this giant presentation of yeah. you know you put it out on the table and those are um, those are things that as an industry we just need to fix mm-hmm. I agree I'm really hoping that with this podcast it pulls some millennials into the wine industry and, and yeah. like hopefully a few yeah <laughs> it shows them that it's not intimidating because i yeah. think like i said a million times on this podcast like most of my friends don't go wine tasting with us because they're intimidated mm-hmm. they they don't know how to taste wine they don't know how to go well, wine tasting not really a how you just do yeah exactly i mean that's the the long and the short of it yeah yeah and that's incumbent on the person um pouring the wine for our guests it's and again, when I said you have to be flexible, you have to realize that there are um, people tasting wine for the first time. And you, I, I always try to do my best to put them at ease. Here, here's the dump bucket. It's okay to use that. Here's the order of the wines. And try to explain what dry versus sweet is. You just, you just, you have to be very um, welcoming to, to all types. Yeah. I think that's going to be, I think, my big, biggest challenge. <laughs> yeah. Like, knowing how to cater to somebody who has, like, all this wine experience versus somebody who has none versus somebody who, like, Is you in know. in the middle. Yeah, somewhere in the middle. Somewhere. Yeah. Come and so, taste real quick and leave. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, the very worst is, and it happens every once in a while, you get people, um, a couple on their first date, and they decide to come wine tasting. <laughs> and they're the only ones in the tasting room with you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do you pull out your uh, Beauty and the Beast, like, be oh. uh, guest? <laughs> no? <laughs> Is that a no? No, no. It's the worst. <laughs> Is it really awkward? I can imagine it being extremely awkward. Yeah. To circle back to some questions I have about your guys' vineyard, um, if this is too much of an inside operation no. question, let, no, no. let me know. Uh, but do you manage your vineyard your, yourself? Do you Are you able to do most of the work yourself, or do you uh, contract out for some labor help and whatnot? 
I, I love working in the vineyard. It's, it's my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it's, um, it's easier to replace my time in the vineyard than it would be to replace my time in the winery. Yeah. So while I still try to do as much as I can, um, we do contract out three times a year. We contract out for pruning, um, once in the summer for shoot thinning and dropping fruit, and then at harvest. But um, everything else, um, maintenance of the vineyard as far as mowing, um, spraying. We we farm, our vineyard we farm um, organically. Okay. We're not an organic winery, but our vineyard is organic. Okay. So with, with that, there's a little bit more of an effort, intervals between spraying. Um, and when I say spraying, we're spraying for primarily for powdery mildew. Okay. Um, and we we switched over about five or six years ago to um, organic stylet oil, which is um, mineral oil. And you have to – we can go about 10 days between spraying. So um, we do have to do that. Um, I do all that myself. And then um, all the weed management we do ourselves. Um, and it, as much as I can. Like, for example, this year we um, – well, last year we grafted over about two acres of our – vineyard from Petite Syrah to Barbera. And for your listeners who might not know, um, grafting just means that you're taking an established plant um, that's planted to a certain variety, in this case, Petite Syrah, and then we're grafting buds from a different varietal, Barbera, onto it. So the challenge is you're taking vines that are 20 years old and have a 20-year-old established rootstock and putting brand new budwood onto it. So it's like planting a new vine on top of a rocket ship. It just it takes <laughs> off. So for, for those this year, for those two acres that we grafted over, it was really important to me to um, manage that section of the vineyard myself. So doing all the pruning, all the training, all the tying. Um, and I like doing that part, but it is, I realize what a time suck that is. Um, so to answer your question, I do as much as I can myself, but at some point it's just one person versus 15 acres of vines is, is not a fair fight. Yeah. 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 I was going to mention that. And so that would be a lot to do on your own. Yes. Yes. And did you say that you graft your, uh, rootstock and everything by hand? Sorry if I'm not using the correct terminology there. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't do it myself. We we hired for that. So we we okay. um, kind of an interesting process. They basically take the top half of the vine, everything you see, cut it off about knee level, um, strip back the bark, put a little slit in the in the topmost part of what's remaining of the vine, and insert the budwood from the variety that you um, that you want to to grow. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting process to watch. But what's good about it is you don't have to, when you were asking earlier about varieties that we, were, that we chose, you're not necessarily locked in to that variety. When, when we started here, there were still a lot of growers um, growing Chenin Blanc and um, Zinfandel that was meant exclusively for white Zinfandel. And you're not locked into that because you can always graft over. Um, in, see, when 2004, or I think when there was a real boom in this area of wineries and vineyards being um, uh, installed, Syrah was so popular. And at one point, 70% of the Syrah in El Dorado County was not producing fruit. And that's just not a formula that, that will work. I mean, it's, you, eventually that will be changed over to another variety. So any, any decision you guys make, nothing needs to be permanent. 
That's good to know. I didn't... That is comforting. <laughs> yeah, that is comforting. I didn't think about it like that. And it's such, yeah. I've heard at least, that it's such an intricate process that somebody needs to go through, like, specific training to be able to graft, um, like, mm-hmm. budwood with, with a vine. With established vine. Yeah. Yeah, yep. and that's out of my scope. James, maybe you can do that, but I, that's, I can't do that. So <laughs> we, we hire the experts for that. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we actually do the same thing, too. There's some crew that starts down in California and works their way up to British Columbia. And if uh, we need them, we grab them as they, they're heading up through Oregon. Um, so that's something I've seen, but I don't think I could pull it off. <laughs> right. Yeah. With your switch from conventional to organic um, in the vineyard, what was the hardest part of that? Was it just changing up your spray intervals and getting on a new cycle? Or was it um, dealing with regulations and whatnot? Nope. It was, it, it, uh, for us, it was weeds. Um, okay. Again, we're not certified. We're an organic farm, but mm-hmm. we're not certified organic. Okay. Um, so we we don't worry about any of that. Um, it's where we used to use herbicides. Um, we're fighting weeds now. Um, so we invested in some equipment. We have a thing called a, a weed knife, which mm-hmm. is exactly how it sounds. It's a yep. knife that cuts out weeds. Mm-hmm. weeds. Um, and you, you have to... You know, now here in California, spring has sprung and mm-hmm. grass is growing an inch or more a day. So if you fall behind on your um, weed management, it's hard to come back from that. So mm-hmm. for us, that was the biggest part. Spray intervals were an inconvenience, but uh, yeah, the weed management is the hardest. And a weed knife does that? It does it act like a lawnmower, or does it cut like below the like I, where the roots are? I can answer. That. It's sort of a uh, <laughs> sort of like a, a sickle. Um, and it has a sensor on it, so it goes in the row, oh. um, and it'll it'll sense when it gets to a vine, and then cut a few inches below the the root of the weed, mm-hmm. and just um, um, cut it out of the earth. But um, you have to do it a little bit more. It's it's much more time consuming than than spraying okay. herbicides. But it, it's done with the machine. Like you're not out there like with a sickle in hand, right? Like no, no. no I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it mounts behind the tracker. Oh, yeah. So do you have a? Sorry, this is gonna be just me being a vineyard equipment guy. Nerd. Um, do you, you have mean. a a two side a double sided unit or is it a single they, that is that is an option um i'm probably not skilled enough of a tractor operator to handle that so ours just does one one at a time okay. that's awesome and so to go off of what elliot was saying at least the ones we've got um that we use the vineyards i manage uh, or help manage it's a hydraulically controlled so you get your you get your blade down to about ground height you pull forward a little bit and you keep dropping it and then as it goes through the row, there's a bar that helps um, relieve the hydraulic pressure and a spring that will pull the blade back. And the bar will hit up against a plant or a post. Mm-hmm. It'll push yep. back and that'll release the pressure. So the knife, the blade moves back out of the way, passes around the plant or the post. And then as the sensor bar passes the plant or the post, it springs back forward. Hydraulics kick back in to push it back forward. Oh. And so that's how it avoids the plants while still slicing through the soil to break it up and cut those roots. That's this is either sexy vineyard talk or James is applying for a job as a, uh, as a, uh, a salesman for a vineyard company. Well, I, I do like this. Uh, we've got a couple different versions. Um, most of the ones. And they make, 
Instead of hand hoeing, you can go so much faster. Elliot, this is what I have to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I think the cool. title of this podcast has to be Sexy Vineyard Talk now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. S- SVT, we call that. Yeah. <laughs> SVT. <laughs> Do you have any more questions about the vineyard? Uh, I don't know. I got too excited about the uh, <laughs> I don't know. Do you have anything? Not about the vineyard, but yeah. I do you have more questions about sales and like mm-hmm. how do you um how do you process sales? Like, do you have a certain software that you guys use to process sales? And and how was that? How was that? Well, it's learning <laughs> to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, we were um we were really archaic. Um, we it, until the last few years, we literally had um, a cash register and a and a credit card machine that That's awesome. you know print, printed out the re- the receipt and all of our inventory was done um, by by hand by by ledger writing things down. Oh my gosh. And um, then a, a few years ago, um, we finally embraced some newer technology. And luckily for us, we never we never invested in in any of these um, point of sale systems that are designed specifically for tasting rooms. And um, there's a really well known. Um, credit card app that everybody uses it and it's um, not rectangular and it's not triangular but it's uh, another shape and um, it does everything for us and it's it's Thanks. portable we can use it at our events and um, that's that's been the easiest transition for us okay. so um, yeah and then doing that we went completely paperless and it controls our inventory and uh, yeah works out really well awesome that's what we need <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's free that's awesome. Oh, that's the best part. Yeah, that is the best part. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that I was worried about is like inventory and sales and finding something that combines the two. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you guys also do online sales. And how is that for you? Like, how does that compare to what you're selling in your tasting room? Is it, is it uh, do you sell more in the tasting room than you do online? Oh, yeah. The online is a, is a tiny part of our okay. business. I don't know if it's that way for other wineries. We just don't... Um, we just don't promote it. Um, most of our most of our sales that don't occur at the tasting room are through our wine club or people that have been to the tasting room before. Okay. My my guess is that you very rarely get an order from someone who's not heard of your brand before they start playing around on the computer and googling you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it difficult to figure out um, like how to ship outside the state or like even within the state? Like how is shipping for you guys? It hasn't been a problem. It's we've we've had a few different um, systems over the years. For a while, we were going through a third party shipper that has all the um, permits for different states. Okay. California is pretty easy. California is the only state where you can be a um, a wholesaler, a retailer, and a manufacturer. Oh. Um, so with that, we can ship wine throughout the state, which is our is the majority of our um, market. But if you want, you can pull permits for different states. Like if you happen to have a customer in North Carolina that buys five hundred dollars of wine from you every month, then yeah, go get that permit. Yeah. Um, but um, there are always there are always ways around it. We have a customer that a loyal customer that just moved to Alabama, 
and um, we have to ship to a state liquor store for her wine. So um, yeah, yeah, you can you can figure out ways around all that. Most I think it's forty one states now you can ship to. Oh wow! Okay, well, yeah, I'm sure most every one of them has a different rule or regulation thrown in. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Do you have any more questions about sales? I know that we've been talking about how our tasting room's going to look and... Took mine. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's all the questions that we have. We've exhausted ourselves. That's right. (laughs) Okay. So what are you guys thinking about? Am I allowed to ask questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, What are you guys thinking about as far as um, size? What's your... What's your goal, at least at the start? Um, at the start, um, I'd like to hit five acres right off the bat, if possible. So that we that can have way, a tasting room, right? We can transition to having a tasting room. Just the permitting in the county uh, took a quick look at it, and that seems to be that seems to be the driving factor. Five acres with I can't remember the density, but it's uh, around 500 plants to the acre, or so I think. Um, and so if we can hit that right off the bat, that would be great. And then I'd like to get slowly but surely um, to a point where, I mean, it depends on what property we find, obviously, mm-hmm. but to get to 2,000 to 3,000 cases over the course of uh, our career, at yeah. least. So we basically want to be where you guys are now. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the right. concept mm-hmm. of, you know, we read on your website, like your whole goal, like even starting out was to keep things small and not to be this huge company who sells, you know, everywhere and anywhere and, and just like have that feeling of, of mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We don't want to, yeah. to be giant. We want to be able to control the quality and be as involved in the process as possible. Mm-hmm. We don't want to end up... Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. I would I would definitely take baby steps. It's mm-hmm. um, When we started, when I was talking about our first couple of years, our, let's see, 2001 vintage, um, we probably went too big at the beginning. And by big, I mean I think we did 500 cases. Okay. Um, and there were times when it seemed impossible that we would ever unload 500 cases. Um, so baby steps all the way. I mean, if your first vintage is a hundred cases, great. Um, are, we went a little bit too big on the vineyard. Um, I, I don't need 15 acres of, of vineyard. It's <laughs> there. Are, and, I've, and I've heard on your, on your podcast, various opinions from your guests, mm-hmm. some saying things that, that it doesn't seem like they're wine if it's not grown from their vineyard and some mm-hmm. saying you know, estate fruit is overrated. I, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but <laughs> err on the side of caution. Um, yeah. Five acres, if, if five acres is the minimum requirement, then start with that and see where it gets you. But yeah. um, staying small is, is your biggest asset. You can always, you can always grow into your shell. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, we'll plan for being bigger, but you know, in, you know, in building the winery and tasting room and everything yeah. like that, but just taking it as it comes more so than pushing to be something yeah. we can't, we can't handle. Um, yes, yes. And I think for the both of us, like I say, being involved and being able to have um, a hand in every part and the quality control, having it be up to our standards, mm-hmm. I think is very important. Not that we're perfectionists, but to be able to produce something we're proud of in the end, I think is um, kind of our, our biggest thing yeah. um, going forward. 
Yeah, and California tends to be very monovarietal driven. So if you walk into a grocery store, you'll see uh, signs, Cabernet, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay. You, you don't see a lot of blends, but those those things are another one of your assets in, in the winery where if you're, if you're starting small and, oops, I made too much of this one varietal, hey, before you know it, there's a really good uh, blend at your disposal. And yeah. I'll even do that. I don't even stick to single vintage wines all the time. If there's a blend I like that, that spans two vintages, um, if, it's, if it meets, like you said, your quality control, that, that goes in a bottle. So be flexible. Be flexible in every part of your operation. Oh, sorry. I didn't just think of another question that I had for you guys. Um, sorry. You guys, you said that you moved onto your property and you were living on the property basically, you know, pretty soon after you guys bought it. Um, we were exploring having like a tiny house or something like that. Like, how mm-hmm. did you guys make it work living on the property and building this winery? Yeah, so we did, um, we bought bare land and then sunk all of our money into um building roads and drilling wells and mm-hmm. having power, um, the essentials. Yeah. And we, and the only reason we afforded that was we, we sold our house in, in, um, concrete jungle that I was telling you about. Um, <laughs> so when, when we were faced with, Hey, how are we going to afford to live? We did exactly what you're talking about. We didn't do a tiny house, but we brought in a manufactured home. Oh, yeah. um, those and too. we lived in that for, 17 years um and then just recently in 2017 um we moved into another house that um we built on the property and sometimes things that you think are a mistake like the bringing in a manufactured home turned out to be a great asset for us we we repurposed it and now it's a um bed and breakfast or we use it as an airbnb vacation rental type thing um but yeah that's what we did so a tiny house would be if you guys can stand to be in that close of proximity to one another and your cat <laughs> go for it uh, we were on the road for four the months <laughs> in yeah. a motor home we, <laughs> we did a yeah short dry run four months in a small motor home a while yeah. back so yeah, yeah. The last four months at least. <laughs> yeah. And we, we looked at manufactured homes before we moved to uh, Newburgh, Oregon, and mm-hmm. they have come up with some amazing manufactured homes, like mm-hmm. just incredible, you know. Yeah, there's some good looking ones. Yeah. At least well, of course, very comfortable looking. Well out of our price range also. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When yeah. when we did it, they were a lot more affordable. And it's one of the things that, because I'm really handy and I can I can build things. And it's for some reason, every time I look at that manufactured home, it, it it's like a little burr in my side because I know I could have built something there. But for us, it, it suited the, the need for us, the, just the fastest way to get living on the property. Um, and same thing, tiny home or whatever, it's do it. Yeah, you, you you realize that when you have acreage around you and a project in front of you that your your little confines of your house are not as important yeah. as you think. Yeah. Do you have any more questions for us? Um Putting you on the spot. So Sorry. it seems like uh it seems like Calif if I'm a kid, if Kate asks this, it seems like mm-hmm. California is your um is your ultimate goal. Yeah. Are what would other is Oregon a possibility, or are you are you really? I know you both grew up in Placerville. Are you, are you really um, set on this area, or? What? I think we kind of go back and forth. Yeah. But for me, California is where I'd like to end up, just because 
our parents are there and you know we're planning on having kids sometime in in the Mm -hmm. future so you know having family and friends there to not only be a part of our future children's lives but also to be a part of the winery itself and and be a part of growing that um Mm -hmm. is really important to me uh, I think that Oregon is a really great place to start in, uh, in a winery and, and grow. And we've met a lot of people, uh, especially in the Columbia River Gorge, yeah. who have just started out and they're doing amazing. And I think that's awesome. And, and if we were to pick anywhere in Oregon, it would probably be the Columbia River Gorge. Yeah. Um, but my heart, my heart's pulling towards California. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Excited. I think if for some reason we can't make it work to go back to california the columbia river gorge is definitely not like our backup plan but it's another good option uh, Mm -hmm. where we have the flexibility to do more of our own thing and not have people think like in the willamette valley where it's pinot noir and chardonnay and um, there are a few places that do other things and Mm -hmm. they do them very well and they're making a good um good little niche for themselves here but most people expect those those two things so i'd like to be somewhere where there's a bit more freedom yeah so if california didn't work the columbia river gorge there's still a lot um, that they're figuring out up there with what varietal or varietals are really extremely well suited for that area so i think that would right. be a, a good backup well not backup but a good option if we yeah. can't make our first <laughs> one work well i'm i'm campaigning to bring you guys back here all right <laughs> well, thank you yeah We'd love to be we would love um, to go a little deeper on it. We would love to go back to um, El Dorado County. Mm-hmm. Um, either AVA would be great by us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that doesn't work, we have kind of played with the idea of Amador County um, just to keep fairly close to friends and family yeah. and be able to be highly, have them be highly involved in our, at least in our personal lives going yeah. forward. Mm-hmm. Yes, Am- Amador County is. Um, I I think largely because of its closer proximity to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. I think Amador County is um, is seeing a, a huge um, proliferation right now in in foot traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see it when I drive by the roads and just the amount of cars um, in the parking lots. I mean, with that comes limos and buses, which um, I despise, but. Um, <laughs> But but it it I think that that is I think that is um, more of a highly trafficked area. Hopefully, in some ways, it'll um, spread up to us here. I it isn't my desire to get um, too big like that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's there's there's definitely a difference um, between the clientele in Amador County and and El Dorado County, at least the southern part of El Dorado County. So, yeah. Well, and there is a forensic lab in Sacramento. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hey, <laughs> don't quit your day job. Yeah. <laughs> Our deal is Danielle will make the big bucks and I get to have fun in the big. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And eat macaroni and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm craving macaroni and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Elliot, thank you so much for being on our podcast with us. Thank oh, you. sorry. Do you have any more questions oh. for us? Before we shut it down. Oh, no. Thank, it's my pleasure to, to be on your podcast. I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying it. And uh, like I said, love, love that it uh, 
fills an hour of my week, and um, you guys are doing a great job, and Thank hang you. in there. Get get better guests than me. <laughs> you are such an amazing guest. Yeah. James, well, I don't know if you just heard it, but James has said you're going to be very hard to beat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. You were, you were great, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we, thanks for taking the Oh, I appreciate you guys, too. Th- thank you so much. Thank you. Well, okay, we will go ahead and stop the recording. Thanks again to Elliot from Busby Sellers. We were so excited to get the chance to talk to you, and you did an amazing job. And we're uh, looking forward to hopefully talking to you again in the future. Yeah. Uh, getting some more good advice. Maybe a little more sexy vineyard talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was awesome. And mm-hmm. we hope that you guys, our listeners, learned something from that as well. Um, mm-hmm. We are... I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm so We're tired. very thankful for Elliot coming on. And we'll try and wrap this thing up for you guys with a couple little updates um, and keep this episode from being too, too long. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we now have our own website. Yay! Um, so you just have to search voyage2firstvintage.com now. Mm-hmm. No more weird, captivate, long, yeah, none weird, of that. awkward, we are hyphenated stuff. Um, so you can look there to start getting a little more information on our episodes we're gonna we're just barely getting things set up yeah so we so don't have a all lot of, our, of weird stuff on there yeah we don't even have all of our episodes on the site yet and I mean, oh sorry keep, by weird stuff i mean there's stuff on there that squarespace has put on there as like a template mm-hmm. and i have yet to remove them so yeah. um but you can still get all our episodes in your normal places. Um, mm-hmm. But we're going to be creating a page for each episode, trying to include a link to each and every vineyard winery mm-hmm. um, related to all of our interview guests. Yeah, so anytime you want, you can uh, look up our website, check out our website, and check out the past interviewees Mm -hmm. that we've talked to and that'll be coming more in the future it Mm -hmm. is the site is live now but we just haven't been able to get everything on it that we want to right and it gives you a direct link to our patreon page so if you want to support our podcast and And sign up to access to more material yeah maybe extra bonus sexy vineyard talk with james's (laughs) that'd be awesome let's do that (laughs) yeah yeah, so you can check out our website, Voyage to, Fr- Voyage to First Vintage.com. And at the top of the page, there's an option that says become a patron, yep. right? Yes, mm-hmm. that's what it says. Just click on that button, it'll direct you over to our Patreon page where you can sign up to become a, a club member. Oh, yeah. Fan club. Yep. <laughs> what else? We've got our Instagram yep. at Voyage to First Vintage, Twitter at Voyage underscore first. Facebook, Voyage to First Vintage, um, and if nothing else, just keep listening if you're enjoying it. Um, we've been having fun making these, and we're going to keep on doing it. Yeah, so if you're on, keep on listening. Yep, if you're on Apple Podcasts or uh, what other places have? I think Google Play. Google you Play can do reviews. If you can rate and review, please yep. do. Yeah, it helps uh, us out a lot. Yeah, 
Not that we're big in any sense of the word, but anything helps. Yeah. And on that note, we will let you guys enjoy the rest of your week and the rest of your Monday. And hope this made your Monday a little bit sweeter. Bye. <laughs> Bye.